Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for podcasts, the show where we take a look at the 1980s dominance of the comic book market by the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise. I'm your host, Nico. And hi, I'm Kevo. And you know, we're here to take a look at kind of like the end of a long, hard fought road. Normally there I'd say, and we hope you survive the experience, but so few people survived Miracle Man. It's almost disingenuous to say we hope you survive the experience. We've now taken a look at an unbelievable amount of Captain Britain and Miracle Man. We've looked at 39 issues of Captain Britain Weekly amongst two dozen afterthought stories. We've looked at a number of Marvel team-ups and we've traced kind of like the weird journey of Captain Britain back from complete irrelevance. Kevo, whether it's the stories with Captain America or ruining the Queen's Jubilee or even fucking Otherworld, can you believe that we went from those to live birthing scenes? I mean, I know you, so yeah. Yeah, I can. It's been a really fascinating way to kind of learn about a hero that had nothing to do with the other Marvel hero. Captain Britain has never really been a breakout hit, and he is at best kind of, oh, that other guy in Excalibur for most American comic book readers. But having read everything that led us to where we're at and his journey, I'm sort of equally taken aback by where we are finishing out the re-release of Miracle Man. We're currently taking a look at Miracle Man The Golden Age, numbers one through six by Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham, featuring additional work by Disraeli and Todd Klein on letters. And, you know, it's just been like, I don't know. I don't know what I expect from Miracle Man, Kevo. What did you expect from Miracle Man? As a whole or this portion? You know, as a whole looking back, because this is really our last time towing our toes into Mount Olympto. Show feet. Um, for this portion portion, I would say this is pretty much what I was expecting as a follow-up to the Miracle Man that I've read so far by a writer I know very well, both from the Sandman series that you introduced me to and from his work on other things like Doctor Who and Stardust, all those good Neil Gaiman-y things. It's what I would have expected from him as a whole Miracle Man. Gosh, I think this mostly lived up to what I was expecting when you described what Miracle Man would be, taking a 1950s pulp character and sort of Alan Mooring the crap out of him. That's a tremendous verb. And, you know, it kind of brings me to something that I couldn't stop thinking about. As I was considering what this arc is meant to be, you know, I couldn't help but think about how the propelled myth of Miracle Man, Marvel Man, whoever he is, in terms of this universe, is kind of an interesting light mirror to the dark mirror of Miracle Man's awkward publication and you know that long hard road it almost seemed like ah finally we're still publishing Miracle Man Alan saved it and here we are we're still going and it sort of made me question who were Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore at this time in their careers well tell me a 
bit about that. So at this point, Neil Gaiman, it's June 1990, and he's about a year into being, you know, like Neil Gaiman. He's not Neil Gaiman rock star yet. He's Neil Gaiman comic god at the moment. And here's a little bit more on that. June 1990 saw the publication of Sandman 16, which is the finale of The Doll's House. It was at that point at which that like Sandman began to tip more toward the cultural centerpiece of comics. And Neil was kind of the likely successor to Alan Moore's comic empire. And to explain Alan Moore a little bit, it's kind of difficult to look at the major works of Alan Moore. If we talk about some of the major American works, we've got V for Vendetta, Swamp Thing, you know, eventually his Captain Britain, Watchmen, and the publication on these were weird as hell. V for Vendetta was originally published issues 1 through 11 in March 1982 to July 1983, which DC would republish from September to November of 1988 as three issues. Book 2's Prelude and issues 1 through 12 saw publication August 1983 to February 1985, with a 13th and 14th issue unpublished, which would eventually be published and collected over at DC in December of 1988 to January of 1989, before DC finished the whole thing off with three final issues, February to May of 1989. Alan Moore's Swamp Thing ran January of 1984 to September of 1987, and in that time, issues 20 to 64, Alan Moore only missed two issues, issues 59 and 62. Captain Britain would run through a number of titles from May of 1982 to June of 1984, while Watchmen would run September of 1986, ultimately concluding in August of 1987. It was really interesting to see Alan Moore leave behind the comic universe he'd reshaped into his image. Jamie Delano took on Captain Britain and Constantine. Neil Gaiman conceptually took on Moore's presence with Sandman. Morrison and Milligan were already kind of doing their own thing over at what would become Vertigo with Shade the Changing Man, Facade, Doom Patrol, Animal Man, all those incredibly important deconstructionist titles. And DC was just months away from doing the Sandman month. So it was sort of like everything Gaiman was coming up Gaiman. And there's something weird about the fact that knowing that this is only eight issues from the end, there were two issues that Marvel has yet to republish, though they've solicited them multiple times. And it's sort of through all of this that I can't help but notice this really dark miracle man not saving this man's daughter, pessimistic dark godhood kind of thing. There's always such a heavy cloud hanging over the concept of power and responsibility in Gaiman's writing. And here he's kind of packaging it and showing it around the main character. Alan Moore's storytelling was so focused on the Miracle family and on who they were from within that Gaiman immediately stripping that away, and much like he would come to do in Sandman, telling us the most important things about those characters by virtue of how the rest of the universe sees them, is a dramatic shift from the storytelling that we've been seen so far. Alan Moore was commenting on earlier comics looking inward at the Miracle family, not the people themselves. He let the characters do that. Kevo, what did you think about this massive narrative switch? I mean, in a lot of ways, these Miracle Man issues that we're going to discuss here are mostly just a response to Alan Moore's. It was like he created a sandbox that Neil Gaiman just really wanted to play in, which I respect. And the stories are interesting, engaging, and in line with the things that Alan Moore already wrote. I think that he really respects the world that Alan Moore crafted for Miracle Man. I don't know if this narrative was quote-unquote necessary 
necessary. I don't know that it really adds anything except to expand on and explore a lot of the threads that Alan Moore created. And, you know, when I think about most of the greatest Neil Gaiman works, they are about playing in other people's sandboxes. Even American Gods is about taking a look at mythology and rather than dressing them up as superheroes, just addressing them as gods. Let's be real. Even some of his work is playing in sandboxes he created. Many of the arcs of Sandman aren't revelatory so much as they are slice of life set in a universe that he created the bounds of in the first place. And he's someone like an Aaron Sorkin who I feel has writing tropes and good or bad, certain writers work best by moving in and out of specific MOs. And as much as I enjoyed the second issue's first story about Miracle Woman, there were some things where I was like, okay, it's a little bit Bilquist from American God and it's a little bit facade from Sandman number 20. And I'm not shitting on that. I feel like I just have seen this element of his storytelling, which don't get me wrong, everybody has repeated elements of storytelling. Chris Claremont can't get through a story without making a woman a god and then needing to maybe kill her off and having a dude tied up. So we all have our weaknesses, but I specifically feel like this is one of those gaminisms and it's just maybe the weakest showing of one of his stronger most. And I think the trope that you're describing that Neil often went to is something that at the time was groundbreaking, much like a lot of creators work, a lot of the things Joss Whedon did in the 90s. They were groundbreaking at the time, but now themselves even seem a bit dated by modern standards. And especially because it was a well that Gaiman went back to so frequently, this woman who was empowered through her sexuality, but now through a more modern lens is really just kind of over-sexualized, and that's not the same thing. In a perfect world, 30 Rock would come back as 31 Rock, and there would be an amazing story about Jenna demanding to play Lady Brightburn. Wasn't Brightburn the name of the superhero movie that recently came out that was basically Miracle Man? Oh my god, I guess, yeah, I didn't think of it that way. I mean, Miracle Man is a better version of Brightburn, because Brightburn is basically just if there's, if there's just Johnny Bates. I also want to remind everyone once again that Brightburn was written by the guys who wrote the movie together in the early 2000s, the boy band parody. Same people. If you are looking for another version of this sort of story, I kind of can't recommend Incorruptible and Irredeemable by Mark Wade enough. Mm, you talked about those a lot at the time as they were coming out. It was truly a spectacular experience. I think you can get almost all of it in three omnibus editions on Comixology, and it tells a very similar what if the best guy in the world became the worst guy in the world, and there's some really cool twists on it. Like, it's sort of almost like what if he had a, a counterpart? What if, like, this total shithead had to become Batman? <laughs> and that's incorruptible, and I super recommend that as well. I'm so glad you brought up Johnny because, you know, the second issue had smacks of several other Gaiman things, but in ways I'd never seen them before. So these were Gaimanisms I felt that were presented in really unique ways and funny little stories. So I thought this kind of reminded me of the Dead Boy Detectives in ways like the setting and, and the pacing and the kids talking to one another. It sort of reminded me of Sandman 25's The Dead Boy Detectives, which would be created by Neil Gaiman and Matt Wagner. Matt Wagner, who would go on to create Sandman Mystery Theater about Wesley 
Dodds. So that was sort of like Vertigo saying, hey, Sandman brought back a lot of attention to other Sandmen. Here's another Sandman. And oh, look, he was on the first Sandman. That was actually the second Sandman with the guy doing Sandman who looks like the Sandman. Take a breath. So anyway, Mark Buckingham, who drew this book, would go on to draw the Dead Boy Detectives ongoing with Toby Lidhouse writing the book. Huh. Yeah, and that's actually a really cute series. They add a female dead girl detective, and it's really cool. I'm a really big fan of that run. It was a lot of fun. But, you know, is that Bates's son? Jeez. He's at least the product of Bates's mouse. And, you know, you mentioned something earlier about Miracle Man refusing to heal someone's daughter. And one of the things that occurred to me was I wonder how much of Bates's aftermath he refuses to touch for fear of encouraging some kind of return. You know, I don't know if healing that man's daughter, I I, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about like all sorts of rape babies that are probably out there basically because that is one of the things that he definitely did. So I think that it is entirely possible that there are a few Bates babies out there. Is that what this kid is? I don't know. Maybe it's one of the different kids in the story where all the kids are talking about Bates. Maybe it's a different character we met entirely. It's almost too much for Miracle Man to think about sometimes. And I think all of the layers that you just weave together, all of the different ways that the spirit of Johnny lives on through the idea of Kid Miracle Man is embodied by the young man's symbol on his chest, the bold wearing of the Kid Miracle Man logo, which I have to imagine is like the superhero equivalent of a swastika at the moment. So, And you have to question why that's permissible when we specifically get a story about how an entire subsect had to be created for people who were in espionage who wouldn't be satisfied unless they were living in this world of paranoia that doesn't exist anymore. If this is some kind of utopia, why are people allowed to walk around wearing a swastika? Is it because there is no fear of that danger returning? But we do see that Miracle Man has some lingering fear about Bates making a return. So I think that part of the narrative is perhaps a little muddled. And, you know, I kind of feel like the muddled continued a little bit with issue three. But before that, even, there's kind of a comment I want to make on issue three that sort of applies to the preconceived notions we have about creators on titles. I'd kind of had a lot of negative thoughts going into this about Mark Buckingham. You've got Gary Leach, Steve Dillon, Alan Davis, Rick Veach, and you're like talking about like these massive, bigger than life, oh my God, motherfucking megastars who can draw the most insane ideas in the most palpable ways. And then you slide into Mark Buckingham, and I think I'm blown away by Buckingham on Miracle Man the most, because when I think of Buckingham, I think of Fable. And when I think of Fables, I think of understated, restrained, slice of life, and the bigger badassery of Moore's Miracle Man, I couldn't imagine Buckingham sliding into this so cleanly. But I'm on the third issue of Mark Buckingham's Miracle Man, and I just find myself mind blown by the depth and extreme sense of variation he's able to explore. These don't feel like the same artist, but I can believe that they're the same artist. I completely see where you're coming from, whereas conversely, I really just saw this as, yeah, this is what a Neil Gaiman book looks like. I think what you were blown away by was something I felt a bit nonplussed by, which is just, you know, this is what a Neil Gaiman book usually looks like with the varying styles, even within an issue itself. And I hadn't really thought about how impressive it is that Buckingham was able to pull that off. And he even had a harder task 
task than I think we've considered because he had to recapture so many ideas that were already static. How do you continue the dynamic evolution of a comic about dynamic evolution when now people are expecting it to be the same thing it was last run? You have to keep finding ways to push the envelope while showing restraint. And I think it really has to do with how well the two of them tell stories together. It actually makes me long for more Buckingham game in collaboration. I personally thought maybe some of this Emil Andy stuff, like, I don't know that I needed Gargunza back. And I think I could have moved the story forward instead of looking back at the past. And I'm sort of baffled by the setup. The whole Emil is like a robot made out of like holographic nanobot robo cells. And he's writing a book. I, the, like the style on this issue though, that Andy Warhol style page is just so great. I hadn't really been sure how it was going to all come together in the end, but I was very satisfied with the conclusion personally. I think it's a really interesting story. I think that it's realistic that they would reanimate Gargunza to try and squeeze out as much good from that man's mind as they possibly can after all of the damage that he did. It's, you know, all they can really hope for, and I thought it was a very clever way of going about it. I was also entranced by how Winter handled it. Basically, the Quiss are fascinated by how well Emil has done with their technology. I love her comparison of Gargunza to a monkey with a Walkman engineering a recording studio. I did think that there were a lot of fascinating elements. In my notes, I have it listed as Winter both spanks her Grampy's ego and then Max on her Grampy's face and he's Ugga. So, like, everybody in this universe loves to make out. In weird, creepy, incestuous ways. Not a fan. But again, it's keeping in character with the original. Okay, and now I need to jump to something about issue four's cover. I feel so bad because I know that there's that image in issue four of Neil Gaiman. I thought that it was just a really artistic interpretation of Neil on the cover, and it turns out it's a homely woman, and I'm very sorry. Yes. I just want to, like, um, masturbate metaphoric about how much I love the artificial holidays here. We have Rebirth Day on my birthday, 2-4. We have London Day on August 17th, and Winter's Day on October 29th. So, adorably, Winter's Day is in autumn. <laughs> so, sadly, though, at this point, the book basically becomes torture porn. This poor woman's life is like a big bag of sad. Yeah, Miracle Babies turn out to be not quite everything she was promised. And, you know, it's also just like, it's just, I don't have it in me to just be bummed out all the time. And this woman's story just like, I don't know that I grew from it. Like, I don't know what the narrative was trying to tell me through this woman. Like, I guess it's still that there is pain and suffering in Utopia for which, yeah, that is an important point to make. But I do feel like there's been hints and hits of pain and suffering in Utopia throughout every one of these issues. And I think the pain in this one had to, in Gaiman's mind, hit especially hard to counterbalance the child's story nature of the other half, but it just hits too hard. I also thought like Spy Story in a lot of ways, issue five, was kind of like on the nose hit kind of hard. Not that I didn't enjoy it, but I wonder if in today's comic market, these stories would have been written differently in the first place. I don't know that they meander. I don't know if that they lack focus, but I feel like more attention is paid to the natural way pacing is changed. And this being of a very specific time and encapsulated of a very specific Neil Gaiman, whose work is already so prolific from this time. It's like it's highlighting all of the ways this is anachronistic to the world we live in. This is just a fucking time capsule. This story, the literally titled 
spy story is very much of the era, very much a post-Cold War espionage story that doesn't quite fit into the year 2020 the same way. There were cute, like, isms that I enjoyed. The whole slow buildup of, okay, but what is the city? What is its name? Like, elements of that were really interesting ways to address what I was thinking. I don't know. I liked parts of it. And at no point was I like, no, this one's bad. The art was interesting. It's It was a fun read. And then I didn't really get the story that came after. No screaming. I did not get that one. Uh, The guy saw Miracle Man. Okay. All right. Like, I don't know. And not even in a bad way. Just a lot of this felt like reactions that I now would have gotten in much shorter stories. Though speaking of short stories, good God. Retrieval thinks 10 pages, 12 pages. It's just that it drew out for so long in the back of all of the other issues and the story itself is not ultimately satisfying enough to have taken me that long to find out what's going on. I'm glad that we know that he's going to get one of his little boys back. Yay! He deserves to get a little, you know, a little buddy. He deserves a miracle pal. But, you know, I also felt, it, and it's it's going to sound really funny, I thought a couple of things as I was looking at this Miracle Man volume. A lot of things about the celebration at the end of issue six mirrored things about the celebration on Krakoa in Powers of Ten and House of X, which I thought was really interesting down to the way the fireworks were. And then I had all these other mentally images of everybody flying with the balloons and Mary Poppins returns. Yes, that's exactly where my mind went. Thank you. And it felt a lot like Olympus again. You know, when you're trying to create something new, there's going to be missteps and misfires. I think at all times, Miracle Man by Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman was hoping to be something very new. And the contributions from Grant Morrison and Pete Milligan equally shine. I feel as though looking back on the schlub that the book starts with, with Mickey and the god of all reality that Mickey is transcending the universe in Carnival, I just feel like... It's one hell of a ride, and it's fascinating to know that it took about 10 years in real time, and that it's still not quite all collected yet in America, and the story is continuing to evolve a page at a time over in Marvel 1000, and I find that I want more. I want to know more. I want more adventures of these people, and I wouldn't hate if, I don't know, I, I just, I wouldn't hate new Miracle Man stories at some point. I really enjoyed this a lot, ultimately the whole experience. The, the more classic stuff, obviously, was very hokey, but it, the amount that I read set a good groundwork to read the Alan Moore stuff and then the Neil Gaiman stuff, which, again, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed, but seeing what his plan was for where this story was going to go and that it was going to ultimately take an even darker turn, I'm glad that it got halted where it did, for sure. And now that it's been about 30 years and Neil Gaiman himself has grown a lot as a writer, I would be very interested to see where he might take the story now with that more experience. I think that would be a very cool thing to see. And I think it is necessary based on the outline that's posted at the end of issue six saying that it was ultimately going to be grimdark. And I, I, I don't need more of that. I understand that he wants to tell a realistic story. So everything can't be bright sunshine all the time either. And I'm not looking for that. But simply going for the grimmest, darkest, story doesn't mean it's always the best. And like, I don't want to sound like, uh, 
and like one of those before Watchmen apologists, but I would love a line of these books. Kid Miracle Man, Miracle Man, and Young Miracle Man, and Miracle Woman, and Miracle Family. I guess I'm willing to buy one a week. Hell, it's been long enough that I think you could even do a brand new take on this take by now. But there is really a lot of miracle mythology for people to learn about and fall in love with. And I think this is certainly a title that they could be getting more out of. It's a work that sticks with you. I used to wonder why so many people were so obsessed with it and referenced it so much and why it was basically a calling card for anybody who worked on it. I get it. Maybe it's not my favorite book of all time. It's not my Alan Moore favorite. It's not my Neil Gaiman favorite. It's not my favorite material by any of these artists. And I think it's because being a part of this incredible thing pushed them all in the right direction. The threads of greatness here are so plentiful that any one of them pulled off in its own direction became a beautiful tapestry. And that's where we got things like Swamp Thing and Sandman. And I'm so grateful for everything Miracle Man has given the comic industry, and I feel smarter for having read it. It's not at the top of my recommendation list for any of these artists, but it's definitely on the list for anyone who is interested in any of them. However, much sad, we don't have any more Miracle Man to talk about, and it is with that that we bid a fond adieu to the, the centerpiece of British deconstructionist comics to make a quick dart back to our good old pal Brian. We're going to be taking a look at the run that made me fall in love with Brian Braddock, the Alan Moore, Alan Davis, Captain Britain run. While true, Alan Moore is missing for the first 10 issues, it's his game plan that takes over and runs the show. The next time we meet, we're going to be covering Marvel Superheroes UK, number 377 to 388, as well as Marvel UK's The Daredevils, 1 through 11. These stories are all roughly between 8 and 11 pages, so it's kind of like a normal amount to be read. There's just a lot more recapping it every time they have to start over. Kevo, I'm so excited to get back to Brian with you. Me too. And until we return to Brian Our Lives Up, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitters and Instagram at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find me on the Facebook page for our other program on this network, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Real Nico Kevo Action. And you can find the super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero stories that we've been crafting for the last several years with Kid Riot and all of his friends over at KidRiotComics.com. Nico, where can the folks find you? You guys can find me all over all the feeds of this show, whether it's Modern Mondays, where we cover We Are Krakoa, and all of the newest stories coming out of the House of X, or it's more stories like this on Throwback Thursday, where we talk about 80s mutant mania. Don't forget to check me out at WeAreKrakoa.com or on my Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, guys, and until we return, keep that siege perilous open. And hold tight to those balloons.